Okay. So we are, sorry, we're coming from, I think last week we came from Iowa and this week we're here, we're going to be home next week. I can tell you that we're in uh, Bethany beach, Delaware. And so we're at a little beach house. We have all five of our kids and our son-in-law with us. And so uh, that doesn't happen very often. Our oldest is 26. The baby is 13. So it's fun to have everyone here. Uh, time is going fast. I can't believe we're, we're almost towards the end of summer. I, I base the end of summer on when school starts. So school's uh, getting ready to start back up again in a few weeks. But, um, you know, I, President Biden, actually, where we are in Bethany Beach, President Biden has a beach house just 20 minutes up the road in Rehoboth uh, Beach. And um, he bought this beach house. I looked up on it because I was like, when was the last time President Biden was at his beach house? Because we're so close to his beach house. And he's coming to the beach tomorrow uh, because I think, I, I think he's using it as an out uh, a nice out not to go to President, former President um, Obama's 60th birthday party tomorrow at Mar in Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. Over 700 people will be there. And I don't think that would probably be a good look for President Biden to be at the 700 person birthday party because he just has instituted federal mask mandates again in Washington, D.C., to which we live. And in DC, in Maryland, now we have to wear masks again. So I thought that was interesting, but President Biden will be at the beach tomorrow. So we'll be looking for his uh, motorcade to see if he's he's around. But anyways, just- You, you will. <laughs> you won't be looking for him on the beach? No. Oh, all right. Ooh, on to on to friendlier subjects, I guess then. Let's just remind ourselves, seminar one, God's hand in building of America. These beautiful people that he used because they were willing to say, okay, Lord, here am I, send me. What would you have me do? Joan of Arc, Christopher Columbus, our pilgrims, our founding fathers. And then uh, seminar two, we understood and, and learned the constitution from the viewpoint of the founding fathers, those seven articles, Lech Sassar, the 10 Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments that they gave us that we call the Bill of Rights, and then 11 and 12. And then those 15 additional amendments that have come since our founding fathers. And you know, several of them have been very uninspired and have disrupted our, the checks and balances in our nation. And now we've been talking about the attacks. We don't know how to fix something if we don't understand how it got broke. And so we're, we're systematically breaking down how this country has become unhinged, so to speak, why we're in the predicament that we are right now in America. And I know this seminar can be a little heavy, but I think it's kind of fascinating because we're living like real time some of this uh, uh some of these attacks and we and we could recognize that last week as we talked about the attacks on our educational system and and we learned about these educational reformers Horace Mann and John Dewey that were atheist godless reformers that wanted to pull moral education out of the schools and um and and they have been successful and today we're going to talk about the attacks on the moral fiber of America so let's get started Section uh, two of seminar three, of all the habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports, George Washington said. And so he, um, <laughs> I hope you can't hear the kids, all the kids will come back. They just went on a, a dessert run from the grocery store. <laughs> do you think we need to tell them be quiet? Oh, well, what can you do with some of the kids are in the house? So by the early 1830s, our founding fathers' constitutional principles were really taking hold in America. Remember, within the first hundred years of living under what our founding fathers gave us, even though we had 6% of the world's population, we were producing over 50% of the world's wealth. So these uh, prosperity economics and these constitutional principles were working. And so also, you know, uh, what they had intended as far as communities in America establishing their own standards of decency and morality and safety, they wanted, you, you know, principle 21 in the 5,000 year leap talks about how our founders understood that strong local self-government was the keystone to preserving human freedom. They wanted 
The local communities to determine their standards of decency, morality, and safety, and so forth. This philosophy of them wanting to foster multiple uh, denominations and the acceptance of all religions throughout America was starting to have an effect on the country as religious beliefs were becoming integral into um, society. So this is exactly what the founders had envisioned as, as evidenced uh, in 1787 when they adopted that Northwest Ordinance. I feel like I'm competing with the kids in the other room. They're having a little ice cream party in the other room. So in that Northwest Ordinance, remember, um, in Article 3, the founder set forth that all the new states coming into the Union, uh, they wanted three things taught in school, religion, morality, and knowledge, all right? And, and so imagine if you could say that when you had testified before school board. Did you know our founding fathers actually wanted religion and morality along with knowledge taught at school? Because the only way that we could ensure keeping this republic based on natural law, God's law, is if we remain morally strong and virtuous and elected those kind of leaders. And the only way we're gonna re remain decent and righteous and virtuous as if we're, we're we're a part of a religion you know religion keeps us looking upward in fact our founder said in order for this free uh, republic to be maintained there needed to be religion now i had just spouted off to you the first four principles and so as you learn these principles and they're integrated throughout the healing of America, you can just speak with greater authority before people instead of using anger and fear and that kind of thing. So our founding fathers recognized we needed to teach religion morality along with knowledge in the schools because people have a tendency to behave according to how they believe. And so they knew that, you know, what was going to be taught in schools would eventually help to become the standards of society. Didn't Abraham Lincoln say the philosophy of the classroom in one generation will be the philosophy of the government in the next? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, at this time in the 1830s, 1831, Alex de Tocqueville, that French author who wrote Democracy in America was fascinated with what was going on with this experiment here in this new little fledgling nation and uh, along with so many others. So he came to America and he stayed for a time and would write Democracy in America. And he, he noted in his book, has anyone read that book? Have you ever read Democracy in America? Pieces of it, Pieces. Yeah, it's, it's heavy read. Well, they say it's a two volume. I just seen I have two volumes. You yeah. have two volumes. So he said, there is no country in the world where the Christian religion retains a greater influence over the souls of men than in America. And he said, you know, look, I, I wondered why they were so great. He said, I sought for the greatness and genius of America in, in her commodious harbors. Was it in her fertile fields or the boundless prairies or their rich mines or their vast commerce? And he said, it wasn't until I went to their churches of America and heard their pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand that the secret of her genius and did I not understand the secret of her genius uh, and power? And he also witnessed to Tocqueville that the ministers taught their people the standards of morality and religious beliefs that, that, that they should be applied to every segment of society, especially in education and politics. But he noted, Tocqueville did, that the clergy still kept their churches politically separated from the government uh, Keep in mind, they didn't want an official church or state religion. They had broken away from the Church of England, but they did. They understood that in order to provide moral stability for the people, that there there would should not be a separation of religion and state. And so, to the founders, religion was meant to be an integral part of the government, and morality was to be a central theme of all their laws. Because if you think about it, the, the government. Our republic is built on self-government. Few laws, self-government, and in order to be able to govern yourself, you have to have religion and morality and to be able to live God's law so that the government can prosper. 
Thank you, sweetie. Okay, so remember that first cycle of education? It was so beautiful. All the children were learning how to read from the Bible, and the kids didn't even go to school uh, unless they were knew how to read and write. And it was just a glorious time. Everyone was reading those McGuffey readers. And, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the attack of, uh, on religion and the moral fiber during that second cycle of religion, a second cycle of education when they began to pull God out of the schools. But you'll, you'll recall during that, that first little cycle of education in American history from really 1607 until 18, 1830s, uh, a man by the name of William McGuffey created a series of readers that supported religion and morality and knowledge. I think I showed you this all last week here, the McGuffey readers. I was like, Jalene, are you seriously going to take the McGuffey readers to the beach? But a class I teach on Wednesday. Oh, look. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Viv, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna haul my McGuffies around the country anymore. I'm just gonna point to you. So the readers go from um, K to eighth grade, but I received a little inspiration this week that I'm gonna start in our morning devotional. You know, every year I do uh, add a little something new to the morning devotional. I'm gonna have our 13 year old start to read uh, the McGuffey readers. I mean, look, they give an example of of one of the lessons in reader number three, that doesn't mean third grade. There are actually four readers, spellers, grammars, readers, one, two, three, and four. And, you know, they weave the little Bible stories and the 10 commandments and the golden rule in these stories to teach children how to read and to spell. So just look here, lesson on the power of no. Imagine if your little kids, you know, you're sitting on the couch reading your grandchildren, having them read to you these little ideas. When we are tempted, uh, number four, when we are tempted, it's in our manual, to use angry or wicked words, we should remember that the eye of God is always upon us and should say no. And when we have done anything wrong and are tempted to conceal it by falsehood, we should say no. We cannot tell a lie. It is wicked and cowardly. Now, imagine having a conversation with your little second grader who is reading, you know, you could say, well, what is an example of, you know, telling a lie? What does cowardly and wicked mean? I, I mean, you could just have the best discussions instead of reading your Disney, you know, at nauseum. How many Disney books do we have on the shelf? So I really, uh, I really say invest in these. They're $92, that set from Amazon, or you can buy them at thrift stores or uh, for $4 for each reader. There's about six readers in, in the series. So 120 million of these readers were sold during the 1800s. Only the Bible and the dictionary outsold these McGuffey readers. So as a result, you know, what, what was happening where these kids were growing up with strong moral principles and spiritual strength and a patriotic love of liberty and the Constitution. So unfortunately, these spiritual and patriotic philosophies began to be challenged by Horace Mann, who kind of came on the scene. He was born in 1850 here in America. And remember, he was going to start to institute these secular humanist ideas. A humanist believes in being separated from the divine. You know, it takes a human to solve a human problem, not God. You know, and so some of his ideas that is that religion should not be a part of everyday life, especially not in the educational classroom, and that the authority and the responsibility for education should be shifted from parent to the state, and that kids are in, innately good, uh, and um, they shouldn't really be held responsible for their natural instincts, even though we know that goes against what the Bible says that that the natural man is an enemy to God. And, and this is why we need God to overcome some of our natural man and natural woman tendencies. And, uh, you know, humanist ideas also teach that mankind was to be the measure of all things, not God. So whatever the popular consensus is of the day, that is, you know, a good barometer and gauge on humanity. And then also it taught that there were no absolute wrongs or rights uh, with our children, that decisions are based on the situation at the time. So, you know, unprincipled uh, um, ideas. And so we've got, remember Horace Mann, there's like over a hundred schools today that bear his name, Horace Mann School. And he was known as the father of public education. So while these changes 
were beginning to go on in uh, the later 1800s. Um, there was also two men that were going to have a devastating impact uh, in the United States. They were two educators in Europe. One of them, Karl Marx, born in 1818. So he was born about 32 years before Horace Mann, because Horace Mann actually studied Karl Marx. He was a disciple, so to speak, of Karl Marx. So Karl Marx uh, was one of these godless educators. He was educated at the University of Berlin, and he really became intoxicated with philosophy and um, believed that there was no need for a creator since uh, matter seemed to create itself. And in fact, in, in his thesis, in one word, it was entitled, in one word, I hate all gods. That was the name of his thesis. So he was a German socialist revolutionary. He wrote the Communist Manifesto. He was known as the father of Marxism. We know that uh, uh, father of communism. We know that communism enslaves men. And whenever these Marxist ideas have been practiced, life has always gotten worse. There's not even a a single exception to this rule in history uh, long term. So he was an atheist as a young man and he tried to infect German society with his revolutionary ideas. People didn't really take to them. I think it's so interesting in a letter that was found to his future wife, Jenny. He said, Jenny, if we can just weld our souls together and then with contempt shall I fling my glove in the world's face, then I could stride through the wreckage as a creator. Now that should have been a red flag to Jenny that something maybe wasn't quite right with him. Mm -hmm. Little Jenny did marry him. They would have seven children. Four of them would die in childhood. Two of them would commit suicide and one died of cancer. And he himself would die penniless in a one room bedroom in London in exile. So the fruits of his personal life were not good. He died, I believe in his sixties. Now he had, um, Karl Marx had a cohort by the name of Frederick Engels. And he came from a wealthy family. He was uh, Marx's cohort. And they uh, began to rally around them communists who were really willing to destroy Christianity and, and Judo, uh, Judeo-Christian values. And these two became really the founders of communistic thought. And um, they used every economic crisis to replace what they called industrial capitalism with communism. And they would go on to write the Communist Manifesto, which is an anti-Christian, anti-constitutional treaties that had a tremendous influence on parts of Europe, especially uh, France and Russia, and, and would gain momentum later on in America. Now, in 1960, I would really recommend this book. At this book, if you can, I think it's only like uh, 10, 15 bucks. Uh, where can you get this, Vivian? Do we, do we say so? I know you can get it on Amazon. You can also get it on the Thomas Jefferson Center for Constitutional. Uh, actually, it's KimberCurriculum.org. And so anyways, this book was written in 1960. It was a bestseller, and it, it found its way into the libraries of the FBI, the CIA, the White House, even though it was written in 1960, there is nothing outdated about this book. It's how these communistic ideas from Marx has permeated into almost every aspect of the, of, of the world. So this book, I actually, in one of the cottage meetings I attended um, probably six years ago, we studied this book for about four months. We went through it and would take a chapter or two, and then we would just talk about it. Now, Cecil B. DeMille, who was a good friend of Cleon Skousen, who wrote this book, he said, Cleon, let's, let's call this book, name this book, The Naked Communist, because we'll just strip communism down of all of its romanticism and propaganda and pretense. And so um, it, uh, it talks about the 10 planks of communism and their 45 goals and how if you were to read them, most of these goals have been achieved in America today. So I would get it. It's a fascinating read. So Horace Mann and Marx and Engels also were students uh, of Plato. And, um, and so they, they tried to kind of put some of Plato's ideas into practice into the 
in into public policy and into the classroom. And they they believed in Plato and that utopian society that Plato, remember Plato was a Greek philosopher that lived about 427 BC. He lived to 51 years old. But some of these ideas of this utopian society that they gleaned from Plato was to do away with the family and adopt and raise children in public financed nurseries, to do, do away with traditional religion and adopt a political religion, which is like irreligion, and to disallow the public to tell lies with the exception of the government, it thinks of, it makes me think of all the censorship going on right now and blackouts of social media and sea of misinformation, the government, CDC, all that. And then it also uh, compelled women to go along to war with men. And we're gonna talk about that in just a minute um, with the ERA movement in the seventies. And so Plato himself, uh, you know, believed in complete dictatorial control over people. And he said here, there's a quote in our manual, nobody, whether male or female, should be without a leader, nor should the mind of anybody be habituated to letting him do anything at all on his own initiative. That sounds like CDC to me. That sounds like the mass mandates to me. So, you know, it's unfortunate that so many Americans have not remembered that our founding fathers would have rejected all these atheistic and totalitarian philosophies. And um, several of our founding fathers did an in-depth study into Plato and recorded their findings. They wrote about what they thought of Plato. Jefferson called Plato's ideas utter nonsense. And John Adams actually wrote a letter to Jefferson. He said, I had the severe task of going through all of Plato's works. And he said, I labored through this tedious toil and my disappointment was very great. My astonishment was even greater. This is Adams to Jefferson and my disgust shocking when I read Plato's laws in his Republic from which I expected most and was disappointed most. So our founders study these ancient thinkers that um, advocated for republic forms of government, Montesquieu, Cicero, Plato, Locke. But um, Plato believed in a republican form of government, but he also believed in an elite class uh, and, and making plans to tell people how to believe this idea of elitism. And, and we're seeing it in the government uh, today. And so, you know, as, as some of these ideas are now starting to float in, in, into America, it's almost as if Congress could feel it. And so they wanted to clarify more closely in 1864, look, our belief in religion. Uh, and so that's when they began uh, to instruct the U.S. Mint to put In God We Trust on all the coins in 1867. And, um, and they said that this was an absolutely appropriate motto for a Christian nation. And, and they pulled that phrase from the Star Spangled Banner that Francis uh, Scott Key wrote in 1814. And um, if I can just, there's a wonderful recommendation for uh, how, you know, that national anthem, which is so under attack these days came to be. It's a 12 minute video. If you'll just Google, Google, the story behind the Star Spangled Banner. It's an 11, 12 minute video and it talks about that 25 hour bombardment that Francis Scott Key was held hostage in a ship on kind of in that Baltimore Harbor shore. And he, he you know, couldn't really see through the smoke of the night, but in the morning, the, the flag was still waving. And it tells us the story of how that flag was still, after 25 hours of bombardment, was still able to stand. And um, I, I, we've shown it to our kids in the morning devotional through the years. And it, get your hanky, because it, it's a tear. It's only 12 minutes. But anyway, so they began to put this, you know, in, in God we trust on our money. So here we go, the early 1900s, the father of modern education changes society. So as mentioned, John Dewey, who came a little bit after Horace Mann, he also believed in this messianic um, character of education and the state 
as the true church and education as the Messiah? And do we organize man's ideas into this educational delivery system called progressive education? Now, John Dewey, he worked and taught for over 26 years at the Teachers College at Columbia University. And he actually worked along with another gentleman by the name of James Earl Russell. And they worked for a quarter of a century, diligently building this branch of Columbia University. And this Teachers College at Columbia is today the oldest and the largest graduate school of education in the United States. And if you were to Google the, the Teachers College of Columbia, the very first notable and uh, notable alumni that comes up is John Dewey. He's the mm -hmm. first one to be mentioned. And remember, he was also at this time the president of the Humanist um, Association. And can I just say, in 1953, by 1953, one third of all the presidents and the deans of teachers training schools in America were graduates of this Columbia Teachers College that John Dewey started and, and taught. And so, you know, as a humanist, he actually uh, wrote here. He said, I believe in no God, and it is immoral to indoctrinate children with such beliefs. Schools have no right to do so, nor indeed have parents. I believe that all children should be taught religion as a matter of historical interest, but they should also be taught uh, other religions, including humanism, Marxism, Maoism, communism. Isn't that interesting? He considered these religions. And unborn babies are not people. I am not yet sure whether the grossly handicapped are people in the real sense. I believe there is no such thing as sin to be forgiven and no life beyond the grave, but death everlasting. And this is the man that would become known as the father of modern education and held up as a notable alumni at Columbia University mm -hmm. today. So this was a, a blatant shocking statement uh, to many people at this time. And, and there were many Americans that resisted this, but there, this was the early 1900s and there was going to be a monumental transformation in our history because in the early 1900s, World War II broke out from 1914 to 19... World War yeah, I'm sorry, World War I. We talked about World War II last week. World War I broke out at, at, from 1914 to 1918 under Woodrow Wilson. Remember a lot of bad things happened under Woodrow Wilson, the 16th Amendment, the 17th Amendment, the Federal Reserve, World War I. And then after World War I was over, Calvin Coolidge was president uh, uh, and he believed in small government and capitalism. And so what happened is our nation entered a real uh, prosper prosperous time known as the Roaring Twenties. And so there was an interesting attack during this kind of prosperous time of America, right when many Americans were enjoying, uh, you know, real prosperity that they had not seen for a number of years at, at the communistic and atheistic leader from Russia, Vladimir Lenin, uh, hired three men who two were prominent scholars and one an obscure artist at the time to put together a scheme directed at the religious beliefs of, of American people. He knew that um, music and art was integral to the way Americans expressed their religious and sacred beliefs. And he also knew that one of our greatest strengths was our religious convictions. And so he hired these three men to begin to attack our music and art. And he did this first by hiring a man by the name of Pavlov, Ivan uh, Pavlov, a Russian uh, physiologist. And he studied um, uh, something known as conditioned reflexes and how it could have a, a control on mind controlling music. Now Pavlov, he's the one that they came up with that theory that every time a dog eats, you ring a bell before the dog is allowed to have his food. And then every time he hears a bell, he associates with food and he starts to, you know, salivate kind of thing. And so um, this man studied kind of the, uh, the effects of rhythm on the human minded music. And then Lenin hired a second uh, scholar by the name of A.R. Luria, who was given the assignment of putting Pavlov's research into, the, into use among children. And he, and he wrote a book uh, 
uh, entitled the, the Nature of Human Conflict and subtitled it An Objective Study of Disorganization and Control of Human Behavior. And then he described Gloria in his findings in great detail, the nerve jamming effect of children and how younger children through music could actually become retarded or animalized. And, and wouldn't we see that uh, several decades later in the 60s and 70s as punk rock and hard rock and heavy metal uh, began to become a part of, of, of that climate. And then lastly, Lennon hired uh, an artist by the name of Pablo Picasso. He was unknown at the time, a Spanish painter who would spend most of his career in France. And he was told to create art that would destroy faith and belief in traditions and canons of traditional beauty and to promote class struggle. And so uh, Picasso began to introduce this term modern art where he was going to turn the mind from what is good and true and beautiful to kind of an ugly distorted version of art and he kind of radicalized art. And so Picasso himself would go on to say, I, I am a communist and I, my paintings are communist paintings. I will never forget eight years ago, we had an interesting experience. Um, Al was sat on the board for the Thomas Jefferson Center for Constitutional Studies. And he was teaching these seminars in history throughout the country at times. He was a businessman. You just did this on, on the side. And someone learned about uh, Al's involvement and what he taught. And it wasn't someone, it was the um, San Francisco Academy of Art. It, it was the, the largest privately owned art academy and it still is in the country today. And it was founded privately in 1929 by a grandfather. And then when we went and visited them, um, they flew us out to San Francisco because they wanted to interview. They wanted you to teach their history uh, to their students. It's, um, I think they have about 11,000 art students to this day. So the, the, the father uh, the son of the grandfather who founded the college uh, was the president of the college. And then his daughter, Elise, who is now the president, remember mm -hmm. she, you know, we met with her. So they, they gave us a tour of this beautiful art academy right in the heart of San Francisco. Then the next day they took us out to their very beautiful house, uh, just out uh, a little bit outside of San Francisco. And I'll never forget what Al and I still were trying to figure out what, what in the world, you know, <laughs> what we were doing there. And I'll never forget them saying they were worried about the art that they were seeing the students produce, that their art was getting darker and darker and less imaginative and inspiring. And they thought it was because the students were not being taught about America and the beauty associated with our history. And it was being reflected in the art. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they, they never did go on to hire you. And I think really as they probably read the curriculum, which you would have taught, it was just too big of a risk for them to teach. And there would have been some significant pushback in the community and amongst the students. But, you know, even today, my kids, you know, all the kids are here around the beach. We're talking about the movies, you know, that have been coming out. And, and they'll even say, Mom, movies are just... So they're just these remakes of Boss Baby 2 and Space Jam 2 and Fast and Furious 9 and uh, what were the kids saying? The Escape Room and the Black Widow. I mean, they just say that movies nowadays are, are just garbage. They like the old time movies. Although we did go last night because it rained all day at the beach yesterday to the Jungle Cruise with The Rock. That was kind of cute, <laughs> but mostly, you know, we're seeing we're we're seeing the effects of what they began to do in, in you know in the early 1900s to our art and music, and so, um, anyways, okay, the effects of Pavlov, Picasso, and Loria would have on the American culture would not be evident immediately, but it's it began to come into full effect in the turbulent 1960s. And I just think uh, this spring when the most influential female rapper, Cardi B, performed at the Grammys uh, this spring. And it was it was it was downright pornographic and vile. I mean, she was on live TV. It was uncensored. There was no warning to parents. And she's considered the most popular female rapper of our day. So our music 
and our uh, art, it didn't just happen accidentally. Um, and so anyways, okay, All you've right. heard a lot from me. Take it over, baby. Okay, so we're in the 1940s and what's, what's going on in the world then? It's World War II. And World War II would have a major impact on almost every country in the world, especially America. So there are two things that came out of World War II. One was, and we saw this during 9-11, was an increase in American patriotism, of course. When we seem to come together as Americans when there's an outside enemy. And which is interesting today because we're now turning on each other. The Soviet Union's gone, even though Russia is prominent and China's prominent, we've turned on each other and we're more divided as a nation as we've ever been. And so patriotism was one result of World War II. And if, but the second one, which is relevant to what we're discussing today, was that it also created a diversion for those who were attempting to impose atheism, socialism, and communism, and other aspects of anti-Americanism into our schools. And so we see in 1948, the Supreme Court, in a case called McCullum versus the Board of Education, it was a landmark Supreme Court decision that related to the power of a state to use its tax-supported public school system to aid religious instruction. So this is a state making this decision. So the case tested the principle of release time where public schools set aside class time for religious instruction. So the court, the Supreme Court struck down the Champaign, Illinois program as unconstitutional because of the public school system's involvement in the administration, the organization and support of religious instruction in these classes. So the court also at the same time of this ruling noted that some 2000 communities nationwide offered similar release time programs which affected 1.5 million students. So this case was, bought, case was bought before the Supreme Court by a woman by the name of Vashti McCollum, who was a self-proclaimed atheist. And she was the mother of a student that was enrolled in the Champaign Public School District. And she thought that her son was ostracized for not attending these classes. So once again, that's an example of how the irreligious use the courts to silence the religious. So for this one kid, all those programs were affected. And what the Supreme Court did was they used the 14th Amendment, which began to tear down the wall between church and state. So the founders thought that all issues pertaining to religion were to be worked out at the state level without any interference from the federal government. The 14th Amendment, the way it was written, changed all of that because it allowed the federal government to dictate to the states what they could and could not do. So let's think back to our Constitution class. In the second seminar, we're discussing the 14th Amendment, and here is a practical application where the Supreme Court used that amendment to supersede what the states were doing. And we know that the Bill of Rights were written as a prohibition against the federal government. They were to have no say, no say at all. And the 14th Amendment changed all of that. And as Julian indicated, it's interesting to note that during this time, we're also thinking about including words like under God and the Pledge of Allegiance or adding, and God we trust to all U.S. currency. And, and God is our trust became our national motto. So during this time period, right after World War II, into the 50s and early 60s, we've got the Cold War with the rise of the Soviet Union after World War II. And so this precipitated the Cold War. It's interesting to note, as I've done some study on World War II, General Patton actually saw the danger of the Soviet Union. He knew that Joseph Stalin was a bad man and began to expose him. And then one day 
General Patton is no longer. He's gone. And so America helped prop up the Soviet Union because at that time, as Julian indicated, we've got people who are pro-socialist, pro-communist infiltrating our government at the highest levels. So then you've got the Cold War. And I think most of the people on this call remember going to high schools where there are bomb shelters. I know we had a bomb shelter in our school. We actually, as it says here in the handbook, we had regular training exercises for possible nuclear attack. Because that was a big deal. Do you remember JFK and the Bay of Pigs? I mean, I wasn't born then, but we've all studied that. But I remember having those drills going to the bomb shelter. Did you? Did you all do that? You must be a little bit older than me. I don't remember going. Well, <laughs> I remember getting in the desk. Well, <laughs> I grew up in D.C., so oh, okay. of course they thought D.C. would be a target, so we had bomb shelters. And then you've got 1957, so you've got the Sputnik coming along, and so social scientists, as they called themselves, began to emerge from the educational system, claiming that we needed answers to the modern threat. So that's when we went from civics and history to social studies. So we went away from American exceptionalism and studied, instead of studying our history and American exceptionalism, we now went to social studies. We're just like anybody else. The U.S. is just like any other country. And we're here to solve the social ills of the world. That's why we've got social studies. And you can see it today in our school system through critical race theory, this notion of social and emotional learning, they're trying to create, in my opinion, these little social justice warriors, as opposed to focusing on high quality of reading, writing, and arithmetic so that these kids can compete. They're duplicating themselves in, into these little social justice warriors. So instead of getting more training for skills, we're doing more training for grievances. In fact, I had the opportunity today to speak before the Utah State School Board because we, you know, we have a footprint there. We've had, a, we've had kids go to school there. So I was asked to speak out against critical race theory and I was only given two minutes, the parents, are given just two minutes. And I, I got some blowback from people who look like me who live in Utah, who are part of the race grievance industry. And so they don't like my message of equality versus equity. Equity in their minds, they think means equality, but it really means equal results. And they wanna play the victim card. And so, based on how I was raised and how I think about things and how I approach the world, it's all about working hard, persevering, overcoming racism and discrimination so that you can be successful and having kids being seen as equals so they have equal access. But I did get a call today on the beach that got a little animated <laughs> from someone who accused me of getting paid for providing my testimony today. We were texting and then I just picked up the phone and called him and put him in his place because I am not gonna put up with it any longer. I know, me and one of our daughters were just happily eating our boardwalk fries and, and then we heard dad yelling on the beach <laughs> and everyone around us turned their music down. <laughs> God, really but exciting. But the phone call ended fine. And he gave me, he's like, oh, I'm sorry, you're right, you're right, I'm sorry. So we're gonna get together when he's in DC in a couple of weeks. But in a nice way, it ended in a nice way, but we have to push back. We can't continue to roll over to people who, who get mad at us for promoting our story because they want us to promote their narrative. And so well, I'm not doing that anymore. Okay. So in addition to religion and morality now being removed from the classroom, going back to John Dewey and Horace Mann, we've got situ situational ethics. So it's okay to lie if... It's okay to commit a crime if. And so we've got these forces that want to turn us into a democracy away from a republic. So you will always hear the left, the left talk about a democracy. And a democracy is based on 
feeling. If you want to put this in your notes, democracy is based on feelings where the majority rules. A republic, on the other hand, is based on the rule of law or God's law. So in a republic, if God has already spoken on the issue of murder, then it will always be a crime. In a democracy, if the majority of the people feel like murder is not a crime, then they can change the law. That's why you hear people talk more about democracy, 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 because that's based on emotion and feelings. Not a republic was based on the rule of law. So let's go to the turbulent 1960s. We'll move through this quickly. You've got the 60s. Man, I, I was born in 67, but what a turbulent time. You've got attack on the traditional family. Do you remember the shows Father Knows Best or Leave it to Beaver? There's a mom and a dad at the home. Mom stays at home. Dad, dad works. Mom is the nurturer, but you know, mom is really running the house. But in the 60s, you started to see more women enter into the workforce, thereby leaving more and more kids unsupervised after school, which led to more television watching. You've got the civil rights movement at the time. You've got the Vietnam War. The Cold War is, is getting even more and more heated with the Soviet Union. So the, the 60s brought a cry for social change that was necessary in their minds for the modern times of do your own thing or my fair share or hiding behind the First Amendment to say, this is, this is my free speech. I can say and do whatever I want to if it feels good. And they all indicated this in the name of progress. This is where the term progressive education comes to be. So in 1962, the Supreme Court outlawed, outlawed prescribed prayers in school. 1963, the Supreme Court outlawed the Lord's Prayer and Bible reading in the public schools. And at this point, for all intents and purposes, the Zion of the Founding Fathers to have public schools teach the fundamental principles of religion and morality was dead. And then you've got, during this time period, parents are, are seeing that this is not right. This is not good. We need to get involved in the education system. And I don't know if any of you all have tried to get into a school board meeting where you're located, but often what we're finding is school board meetings are now closed to the public. They have forgotten their role in supporting the parents and the families and the students. Instead, they want us to support them. Just like I said today, I, I had a chance to provide testimony and I was only given two minutes. And so they all offered other parents two minutes. But didn't you like uh, two weeks ago, wait for two hours? I waited for two hours. There was a list of 30 people who were on the list. I was number 28 out of 30 and they stopped at number 25. They had heard enough and all they had to do was go 10 more minutes to accommodate people who have been waiting and they cut it off. And then they had two armed police officers walk to the front to protect the board from the public. I mean, it's just, it's just outrageous. You were there in person two weeks ago. I was there in person two weeks ago. And you testified on Zoom today. Yeah, and I testified on Zoom today. So parents are considered as untrained for modern education. How often have we heard teachers tell our students that, uh, well, your parents are old fashioned. They're kind of outdated. They're, you know, they're not trained to be good teachers. Last time I checked, teaching was a gift. Teaching is a gift from God. And you, that doesn't require a certificate. So let's fast forward to the what, next. What about some potential teachers out there that are on the call? Are there, would you say that they're not all teachers are teaching that doctrine? What do you mean? That, you know, there's a generation gap your parents just don't understand or. Okay, you want to elaborate? No, the look no, I think there's some teachers on the call here. Oh, so okay, okay, I'm sorry. Don't wanna, I'm, I don't want to cast a blanket over all the teachers, but I think you all know what I mean. Yeah, yeah I, I'm a teacher, and I'll say real quick, it's absolutely a partnership between the two. You have to have the parent. 
you have to have the parent buy-in and doing stuff. <clears throat> I, you know? I, right, exactly. To so that's my thought. Yeah, I, and ultimately, your child is your responsibility. If the teacher fails your child, that's terrible and horrible, but ultimately, the raising of your child is upon you. Yeah. And so I totally agree with that. It's, yeah. it's up to the parent to educate your child with the help of the teacher and however we concoct our public education, right? Right. But it falls upon the parent for sure. Absolutely. Right. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. Okay, the 1970s, I'm going to read a quote from a writer in a humanist magazine. He said, the classroom must and will become an arena of conflict between the old and the new, the rotting corpse of Christianity, together with all its adjacent evils and misery, and the new faith of humanism. That is quite profound. Let's see here, what else can I highlight here in the book? Let's say it's interesting to note that instead of focusing on standards and laws of protecting the rights of religious, it's been the irreligious who are using the courts, as I said before, to silence the religious. And what they're doing is, and we've seen it, we've seen the redefinition of marriage. We've seen the removal of many religious symbols from the public square. And so instead of protecting the, the religious's right to exercise their First Amendment right, we're protecting the irreligious. Let's see, so let's go to the 1980s. I think most of us were around then. There's a statement, good friend of Glenn Kember, Don Sills, who's in Fredericksburg, Virginia, quoted John Dewey as once saying, and, and I think we can all relate to this statement. It's in our handbook, but I, I think I want to read it here for emphasis. If the public schools can keep children occupied from 7 or 7.30 in the morning throughout the day with sports after school and homework in the evening, the parents will have less than an hour a day with their children, and the families and Christian churches' influence over them could be broken in about a generation. <laughs> I mean, that is so... So profound. So we've got a few minutes left. There. Yeah, can I can yeah, I just say that. our founding fathers understood, you know, the impact that their mothers had on them, and so did our these godless educational reformers. They said the two greatest detriments to being able to control children was the mother and God, and so they began to make the school day longer. In fact you know, kids used to be taught in the one room schoolhouse kind of thing. And then they broke them up into three different schools. So now peer pressure became more important on the kid than, the than the family. It's interesting if I think we've recommended the real George Washington and the real Thomas Jefferson, but it's interesting to hear what these founders, how they understood their mother's influence impacted their life. Mary Ball Washington um, George would write about his mother that she was a strong-willed woman and they were often at odds, but he affectionately called her his reverend mother. And it talks about a, a time in his childhood and, and his father died when he was 11 years old. And so um, at 14, George was kind of big in stature. He wanted to join, he wanted to go to sea and become a midshipman in the Royal Navy. And his mother was very uh, opposed to this. And he said, my bags were packed, but he didn't go because of her earnest solicitations. And I, I chuckled to think what they might've looked like, yelling, screaming, crying, prostrating herself on the floor. We've all done it when our kids mm -hmm. were gonna make a terrible you know, decision and how American history would have been different if you know, not for this inspired mother. And, and you know, the influence that she had over him. And, and Thomas Jefferson spoke the same way about his mother, Jane Randolph, that he said she was a woman of clear and strong understanding. She would bear 10 children. And she also lost her husband uh, when Thomas Jefferson was only 16 or 14 years old and raised those kids, had 10 kids in 15 years. And so, you know, these, these godless reformers understood the influence of parents on their children. And so to lessen that 
And Hitler did this as well. He had all kinds of youth programs after school to lessen the time that the children would be under, you know, the stewardship of their parents. Mm -hmm. So I just think that's right. And if you think, if you look back at the Western family, it's a perfect vehicle for transmitting to the kids these traditional values of work ethic, religion, perseverance, and so forth. And if you can break the family, you can break that path or transmission that has been, that has worked in terms of transmitting these values to the students. So in 1990s, you've got leaders who are now graduates of the American educational system that have been void of traditional and moral training. So you've got these people who are now in power who say they love the country, but really don't have a proper understanding of the constitution. I mean, that, that problem, would have been us. I graduated yeah, in 87. That's right. And the problem, and we, you know, we did. Yeah, we did. So being in the, the state legislature was a real eye opener for me because, you know, we were, I was at an advantage because I knew what the proper role of government was. And that is to protect the rights of the people, not provide equal things. And so it was just astounding to me to see people take the oath of office about the defending the constitution by not really understanding what the proper role of government is and the importance of the constitution and so you just get laws that are that are all over the place and people would vote based on who gave them the proper and right story as opposed to voting on principle voting on principle and so that's mean that means that you get more legislation based on emotion as opposed to principles and the proper role of government. So in our book here, I'm going to, I think, Julene, we're almost done. I, I do want to read a couple things out of The Naked Communists that kind of highlight the last section here, because I think we all know what have been the results of this whole progressive agenda. And as Julene said, this book was copyrighted first in 1958. So this is written... These are, I believe there are 45 goals and objectives of the Communist Party. And I'm just going to read a few of them here. Number 15, capture one or both of the political parties in the United States. Use technical decisions of the courts to weaken basic American institutions by claiming their activities violate civil rights. Get control of the schools. Use them as transmission belts for socialism and current communist propaganda. Soften the curriculum. That means more social studies. Get control of teachers association and put the party line in the textbook. Gain control of all student newspapers. Continuing discrediting American culture by degrading all forms of artistic impression. Let's see, break down cultural standards of morality by promoting pornography and obscenity in books, magazines, motion pictures, radio, and TV. Infiltrate the churches and replace revealed religion with social religion. Eliminate prayer or any phase of religious expression in the schools. And lastly, and this is a long list, but I'm going to close with this one. Discredit the American founding fathers. Present them as selfish aristocrats who had no concern for the common man. And this was written in 1958. So we can kind of see where we are. And it's quite chilling. They, they, they've been very patient and very strategic about infiltrating our schools and our government. While we've been busy going to soccer games and raising our families, they had been running for public office, running for school boards and so forth. And now they have infiltrated our this whole agenda. But because we know it was done systematically, that means systematically we can put it back together as we educate ourselves and become more knowledgeable about the right way to do things. Thank you, Janine. So the social scientists have said that teaching Christian values might offend the Jewish student or Jewish teachings might offend the Buddhists. 
student or the Islamic and certainly God-centered teachings would offend the atheist student. And so they tried to please all by teaching religion and morality to none. And we've seen the effects of children when you take God out of the school. Imagine, uh, you know, in the 1800s or early 1900s when they would pray in school and a child was about to take a hard test and that prayer might be the impetus giving him the, the faith that he could he could perform under pressure. So as you begin to take God out of the schools, we're seeing kids, we're seeing all declines in, in the scores and tests and, and, you know, dropouts are going up and More suicides. suicides and, and children are mentally, uh, you know, are feeling much greater anxiety and depression. They don't know where to go. You know, when they were praying a hundred years earlier, they knew how to overcome and uh, as they would turn to God every day in their studies. And so what we're seeing now is young people not knowing what to do when, you know, they're, they're, uh, you know, put forth uh, temptations and, and those kind of things. It reminds me of um, that. We're raising so we're raising kids. I think I know where you're going. Here. Where am I going? We're raising kids <laughs> Help here. Me out here. We're okay. raising kids here who don't love America. Yeah. Because yeah. they're not being taught the stories. Yeah. And so we had a devotional just the other morning. I don't know if you talked about this yesterday, but we I created a, a quick slide presentation. We talked about Jesse Owens. In our in a, in the morning we have devotionals, so all the kids are back in town, so we're having right. morning devotionals. So them. we 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 put up a picture of Jesse Owens and then highlighted some of the things that he was going through, 1936, representing America as a black individual. He won four gold medals. The Olympics were in Germany, Berlin, Germany, and guess who was there watching? It was Adolf Hitler. So do you think Jesse Owens was under a little bit of stress, had, had some mental issues maybe he was dealing with, but he overcame them and went on to perform and win those four gold medals and became a hero and then stood on the stand to get his gold medals and saluted the flag. And so if you can teach your kids those stories, and there's so many of them, white, black, doesn't matter what color there are, when you can teach people those stories that what they did to overcome, you know what, maybe you can apply it to your life and maybe that you can overcome it. And so when you go back and say, man, Jesse Owens was able to do this under those circumstances, that means me today under far less oppression, far less pressure. I think I can do it. I think I can. I think I can. I know I can. Yeah. To teach them to be victors and not victims. Right. Yeah, yeah. And um, and you started out that devotional by taking to the book of Isaiah and the Bible, uh, uh, chapter 51, verse 1, that talked about coming from the rock from which you were hewn, going back to your roots, remembering. And then you took us to chapter uh, 53, how um, God was a God of sorrow, but we could be healed through his stripes that we can be, we can overcome anything through God. So, you know, imagine as kids were, you know, reading Bible verses in the schools in the 1800s and early 1900s, and then they began to pull, you know, that kind of instruction out and young kids nowadays, they don't know how to overcome because they're, they're, they're being taught they're either the oppressors or the oppressed, you know, they don't, aren't, aren't being steeped in, and that knowledge that there's a God in heaven right. that will or, see you through, that you can forgive. Right. Can or, they're, or they're in the Olympics serving their own interests and not really caring about the country that they're there representing. Right. This is USA on their chest. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I know that Seminar 3 is kind of heavy stuff, but I do think, like Al talked about, you know, the greatest threat to America is that most Americans and our young kids don't really know what made America great. And as we come together in these cottage meetings, these study sessions once a week, we're educating ourselves so that we can go and help be a part of changing the hearts and minds of this generation that are really been deceived because they're not being taught what our founders intended them to be taught religion morality knowledge in the schools and now we're sending the kids back to school in a few weeks masking them up again 
you know, critical race theory is going to be full force. You know, they're going to learn that they're either victims or they're racists or they're, you know, and so these kids are confused and we're seeing kids acting out. We're seeing, you know, kids, what that 21 year old kid who shot at the massage parlor and then the media said it was a racial incident. And because he didn't resist arrest, he lived to refute that. He's like, this had nothing to do with racism. He said, I am uh, addicted to pornography and to sex, and I don't know what to do with myself. And so he was so frustrated. You know, we don't seem to want to talk about that industry. We just want to turn something into an opportunity for gun control or or a racial incident. But really, these kids were not equipping them with the the ability to know who to turn to uh, because we, we pulled that example out of the classroom and we're bearing the fruits of that. So, you know, unless we really understand the nature of our problems and how we've kind of strayed from the original moorings of our founding, it's impossible to appreciate the tasks and what it's going to take to solve these solutions. And, you know, I was where so many mothers were 10 years ago when I started that cottage meeting in Hood River, when about six of us ladies would get together once a month and study the principles from the 5,000 year leap because someone, you know, Glenn Beck said moms get together and learn these principles and teach them to your children. And, you know, what those women have gone on to do in that cottage meeting. Yeah, amazing things. things. I wish I would share some recipes, but... (laughs) We, yeah, we stopped cooking and we started fighting the battles out in the world and our husbands. But some of the husbands like you, you know, got on board and, and we fight together now. We, we still cook a little bit now. <laughs> <laughs> Vivian, before we get too quick, go, take over, Vivian, please. <laughs> so just hold, hold on. Right. As we continue to look to God and, you know, not to Washington, D.C. or President Biden, who's at his holiday beach house this, this weekend. President, please. <laughs> well, I, I think that's what most people call it, honey. Uh, and as we continue to keep our family close and to teach them these great stories to help them to overcome and to continue to continue to study the founding fathers and become steeped in what our founders wanted for this nation and what made us great, you know, when we were living under these principles. God really will teach you. I mean, today, Vivian, we had, what, 22 mamas uh, come to a cottage meeting uh, hostess training. So these cottage meetings are popping up all around the country. And as we get involved, as we join groups, as we continue to meet together online, and as God puts into our hearts, you know, to testify before school boards or to support good uh, men and women or to run for office ourselves. You know, it will be the the righteous fathers and mothers who will wake up those around them that are worried or slumbering a little bit. And I really do think it will be families like all of yours that will be the impetus uh, for this nation enduring and for God intervening and healing our land. And, you know, it's, it's we've seen throughout history, we saw our founding fathers and the credit that they gave to their uh, mothers and and they love their dads too even though their dads passed away at a young age you know the impact and influence that you know parents can have on their children that you know it's not just a cute little saying the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world and so god will put into our mind ideas and then we will teach and and instill them into our children and then god will do the work within them that they need to do. So next week, we're going to talk about the attacks on the Constitution. And I hope that we will really begin to connect the dots, yeah, of what has changed in our Constitution through these uninspired amendments and how it has impacted us today. And remember, as we study all these attacks, just know Seminar 4 is going to be all about the repair. How do we heal it? How do we fix our education? How do we fix our Constitution? How do we fix, you know... Uh, our communities and nations and, and so forth. So there's hope. Hang on, hang on. Don't don't leave before the good stuff starts in seminar four. All right, Vivian, thank you so much, honey. Take her away.